0: Hi, Purim is around the corner next week, of course, and I may end up doing uh, an extra podcast or two or three. Uh, some people approach me. It depends on the sponsors, but before I forget, I do want to say that the podcast I'm going to do today, which is for the Parsha, Parsha Truma, is being sponsored by Ed Farkas in, um, in New York, and uh, he's in the Golden Club, knows he's done it before, and I'm very grateful. I'm grateful to all of our sponsors. And without any further ado, I'll cut into the regular uh, broadcast. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, Connecting the human side to Jewish history. Hi, it's Wednesday morning, and I'm going to see, <laughs> I just got my shots. Uh, we'll see if uh, I'm able to put in the uh, Parsha this morning. I'm going to have order this week, but doesn't matter. We're looking at, um, of course, Pasha's Teruma, and now we begin uh for now we begin um what shall i say four pashas in which we go into the mishka in the detail is the truma the Tzavah, and then the vayakam Pakude. but the truth and matter is Truman the Tzavit is where we go into details in the mishka and vayakam Pakude is just the story the history of how they put it together that's all how they executed in vayakam Pakude, they executed what they were the instructions they were given in Truman the Tzavit. now the whole business with the Mishkan is a funny business and it brings into relief, in my mind, that's all I can ever share with you, I told you my opinion, uh, this funny business, particularly finding the book of Shmos, in which you see a lot of paradoxes. Let me explain to the degree that I'm able. We all know Shimon Panu La Usually you understand that to me like this. There's a lot of different ways of explaining the puzzle There's a, a, you know, Nigla and Nister. It can be... Maimonidean, uh, philosophical, it could be mystical, um, you know, Hersheyan, whatever, you know, all that way, all different ways. Uh, as we know, some Chazal will say this is a good thing, some Chazal is a bad thing. Like I said last week, some say the fact that they ate when they went up the mountain was a good thing, some say that it was a bad thing. It's a point the Torah. That's true. But as doesn't comprehend the totality of the uh, variety. It's also some of the levels those. The stories are understood described to us in p- different levels of interpretation. Uh, sometimes paradoxical. I have in mind what I've said over and over again. P- what exactly happens in Sinai, for example? Moshe goes up a mountain. What do you do that for? God is not at the top of the mountain. God is not physical. Right? He's not at the top of the mountain. It sounds like he went up there and up there, we're waiting for him two tablets. You know, and that's what happened. And instead, they'll say, well, Moshe went to shamayim uh, And that's where he got the Torah. Olam Moshe Lamarim. Okay. Uh, he didn't go, to, that's not a physical place, heaven. And so what you're saying is, he had a a mental experience of some sort or another. His goof was down here on earth, but his mind, his neshama, whatever nevuah is, Uh, transcended the physical and returned with the Torah to a physical place. So he took, on the contrary, that makes it a fascinating story. He took something which was in Shammai, meaning which was not physical, and by the time he came down, it was physical. You know, it almost parallels the Kabbalistic idea of the spheres. You know what I mean? You, little by little, become more gross, grossly materialistic. Sean, let that be. So then why give me why? Why didn't the Torah give it in the following way? Moshe has a dream, or a an nebula. And by the time it's over, he got the Torah, right? And if God wanted the Jewish people to see it, they would see Moshe sleeping, or I don't know what, or awakening. And, you know, God's saying, here, I'm giving you the Torah. I'm giving you the Ten Commandments. They could all be present. What's Stay away from the mountain, go up the mountain, and then... Um, you know, go halfway up the mountain with not a of an avail when you go the rest of the way. All that business. Why, 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 why you have this? You see, that, at least to my mind, any religious experience has to contain both a physical as well as a non-physical element, even though it is misleading. Okay? It's intrinsic to the nature of the religious experience that there has to be a certain amount of sheker involved over there if you're talking from the point of view of pure truth. And... Again, as I said a hundred times, anytime you're daven, or you think about God, whatever you think about it is not true because you kind of comprehend God. Ne- nevertheless, we have to do it. What, what are we supposed to do? If we have a mitzvah daven or in any sort of way communicate with God or have Hashem in mind in the Vegas. there's a hundred mitzvahs about dveghis. Dveghis to what? You, you can't comprehend what you're dove to. The answer is you come up with some idea, right? And you know at the same time, like I said, you have asterisk, you pinch yourself. And you say, the thing I'm being dubbing to isn't really identical with what God is, because God is beyond that. Any idea I can think of was created by God, therefore it can't be identical with God. Nevertheless, this is what he wants me to do. The very fact that until he wants me to do that, it's also a paradox. Because God's not supposed to have a will. Right? He created a will. Otherwise, there are two gods. So, it's, you, it's intrinsic, I repeat, to religious experience. The way the human being was created, that you have to have like a on your in your quest to find God, you have to run into, you have to use uh, and focus on things which are not really God, but that's what God wants you to do. That always sounds funny. Uh, and therefore, if you're going to get a Torah, it's going to be a physical component. You're going to go up a hill, a mountain. right? It's going to sound like God's up there, but you pinch yourself, you know He's not up there. You pinch yourself, you know He's not up there. Now really, if they wanted to get across the idea to the people that God is not bound by physical laws. Why didn't he just suffice with saying "Kol Amroim um, esakolus Lapidim, and all that business, which the famous Razel said that they saw what can only be heard, and they heard what can only be seen. "Roim colus. How do you see coal? Right? calls you hear, it. you don't see it. And the idea there is they transcended the usual, and by doing that, they saw. That the physical world isn't the ultimate reality. Um, You know, I mean, from a modern perspective, you can see sound waves, you know. (laughs) But I don't think that's what it meant over there. Although, this is going to get a lot of play this week and next week because Purim is around the corner. And as you know, by Herschel Schechter from YU said that you can rely on the Moshe Feinstein, the Igrist Moshe, to do the Zoom. Right? You heard that. I saw it. No, I was listening to to McGill on the Zoom. And the idea is he's relying on the, the famous figures Moshe. When I remember the Moshe Feinstein talked about telephone. You know what I mean? Listen, McGill on telephone. Eh, I telephone's not really your voice. He he more or less said, you know, not using these words. That that's modern approach is not fun to Chazal. You understand? Chazal, if I'm talking, you hear me now. That's called you're hearing my voice, even it's through a phone. If there's a time gap, it's a hava'ra. It's echo. But if I'm hearing at the same time, it's a phone. I think that's what he said. Back there, I can't remember where. And I remember he said, the people said, oh, no, now it's a phone and a TV. It's, it's a waves. He said, well, when you talk, there's also sound waves. <laughs> right? When you talk, there's also sound waves. So the point is, you see that was hearing, here, now it's seeing. Now, to get back to our story. So we see that the very giving of the it tour itself is a paradoxical business. It's done... In a spiritual sense, but there's also a physical component. Even the physical component cannot be the real thing, and yet the whole Maimon was like that. It sounds like Hashem was up there in the mountain, screaming and shouting and sending kolos. And we know that Hashem's not on the mountain. He created the whole scene. Okay. Now, uh, and the even Chazal also said he put on a, a a light, a fire, and a light show. Ula Yevshar, this The Jews are so stubborn. Maybe if I take out my whole bag of tricks, it's a Maimon uh, in a in, uh, kisiso. Then maybe they'll listen, they'll be impressed and keep the Torah. Okay, so Noah's is there for show. Uh, now let's switch to Truma and Tissab and all that. Truma. So there's a the Mishkan. Notice uh, we have the following problem, of course, which is how do you build a house for God? And yet, it's striking to me, there are a lot of differences between the Mishkan and the base of Midrash. One of them is that when Shlomo Melch builds the base of Middash, which is fancy schmancy, he has a small, uh, 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 an entire speech. He's a base hashiyach al kolecho. Hashemayim is not mechal kolecho. In other words, Bono Benisi base vulach melchol sheptchalalim. Sholem Achu has his dedication. He spent a trillion bucks, the building of fancy, fancy base reason because he was loaded. But then he says, when it's all over, the uh, maybe we can not build a house for God, right? Uh, which is true. So how come Moshe, nobody made such a speech now? or to be more exact, what's the difference, listen closely, what's the difference between the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash? The difference is, the major difference is, God said, I want a Mishkan, but God said, I do not want a Beis HaMikdash. Do you know what I said? There's a famous story in Shmuel Alf when Shmuel Beis, rather, at at a certain point, says, I'm living in a palace, and God's in a tent, because at that time, at that specific moment, uh, Mishkan was destroyed. The Ark, with the of men, the Ten Commandments and everything, the Aram, was in the field. Uh, at the beginning of Shmuel Oliph, there was the Battle of Ufech. The Philistines defeated the Jews and captured the Ark. And according to Chazal, they burned down the Mishkan. Uh, it was not rebuilt. And there's no Mishkan. And so, by the time David becomes king, he transfers the Ark to Jerusalem in a famous scene. And then he says, I want to build a base of Middush. And when he does, at first the prophet Nathan says it's a good idea, Nelson Anubi. Then I shall tell you who gave you permission to speak on my behalf? Tell David, I do not want a a, a base of Mikdash. I never asked for it in 40 years, wandering. endeavors, I never told him about it when they were in Eric's on time of the show if they might have ever complained about it. I complained about Avodah Zara. I complained about Michal Shabbos and not keeping the mitzvahs, that's what I care about. I don't care about a house. And that was all disappointed and Hashem sort of like a compensation. He said, Alright, your son will build it. Right, your son will build it. So we get the impression from reading all this a bit the Ebed. Hashem didn't need a house. This is a very mind approach. The Iker is the Muno, the Iker is to keep Shemir's mitzvahs, right? The Icar is, you know, not do Avodah Zoro, that sort of thing. Being on the Mokam, Binam you could, they could have easily uh, re- rebuilt the, the Mishkan be a lot cheaper. I don't need a house. If you want to build one, build one. And I remember in the Book of Kings, it says that after Shlomo built it, Hashem warned him. He didn't come to him and say, oh, I'm very impressed. He said, if you think that this is going to be a substitute for the Torah Mitzvah, you're in big shape. It'll be, uh, I'll wipe you all out. Right? If you keep the Torah Mitzvah, it's will go uh, uh, a, a set of sukkum like that. Look it up in off. Um, in, in if you keep the term this, okay. If you don't, I'll make this a byword. I'll destroy everything. So you see, even there, Hashem basically says, "You built me a fancy based basic English." Not impressed. Not impressed. Never asked for it. And and it sounds like God is worried that this will become something that will form as a background for doing a Zorah, which of course happened. This did happen, unfortunately. Now. Not by the Mishkan. In the Mishkan, it's a... Mm-hmm. Meaning, when it comes to Mishkan, God is the initiator. And he's the one who gives the tale of destruction to Moshe. Exactly what I want to build. So, you get the impression, Mishkan, I like. Beis Hamish, I do not like. It's very interesting, right? And you don't see, when Moshe finishes Beis Hamidosh, Hashem to make a speech like this. If you think that this is going to substitute term missus, I'll nail you. Nothing like that. So what's is going on over here? It seems to me that there's less of a danger of the mishkan becoming a negative thing than of the bismigdash becoming a negative thing. And I remember in the past that Barbarinel has like a speech about that somewhere. Because the bismigdash eventually was repeatedly prostituted for idolatry. That's why... Like we did last week's Pasha Shkollim. He had to have these kings come on and fix everything and, and repair everything and get rid of all the junk. Yoash comes to mind. Chizkiyahu comes to mind. Yoshiyahu comes to mind. There were repeated attempts where the base of mish was messed over and used for idols. As an idol center. Uh, or something like that. Never the Mishkan. It's interesting. Never the Mishkan. I don't say things were perfect in time of the Shofti. Because they were not. Uh, but you don't see the Mishkan being misused. That's just interesting. Now I repeat, Hashem said I like a Mishkan, I want a Mishkan, and here are the um, details that I want. And it goes in great detail about this. Uh, so there's going to be something physical, and it's going to sound like God is d- is dwelling there, B'Shalchanti B'Shalcham, but uh, as the Old Mepharshim will say, it doesn't say B'Shalchanti it says Right? I won't actually be resident in that Mishkan, but Wall it will help me be resident among the people. That's a you know, an interesting dear hair. Now, it seems to me that uh the danger, the fear is that the the Mishkan or the Base Mage more specifically could turn into something bad. How did it turn into something bad? Well, it might become an object of worship. Well, you never find the base image was used as an object of worship. People didn't worship the house, the building. See what I'm saying? So what was the danger? Rather, the danger was that since the base image was such a fancy schmancy operation, so impressive looking, if you studied the Neveum closely, I would argue that you'd see that the Neveum came to believe that as long as you have a base of amigdash, it's like a lightning rod. That's the wrong word. It's like an insurance policy. God will not destroy the Jews and will not allow the city of Jerusalem to fall. Uh, because that's his house. So they took it too seriously. And therefore, even if they do have errors, they sort of like feel they have insurance policy. You see? Yermio talked about this at great length. I think Ishayo, if I remember also. People felt, as long as this house is here, you know, we're okay. Ah, what about the fact you're doing a Zahra? What about the fact that you're conducting a vodazar in the precincts of the temple? That's a major theme of the book of Yechezkel. Right? Uh, that didn't bother them. So in other words, the base, I become a negative thing. Is it, Look how clever the Yitzharah is. There's no other thing as a material object that can guarantee you that you'd be from. Because a clever HR can always latch itself onto any project in the world and use it as a way and spin it in such a way that the results are anti front This is very interesting. Now, when it comes to the Mishkan, it didn't exactly happen. But well, let me put it this way: it didn't happen in time of Mushurbino. And um, was there a destruction of the Mishkan? Well, it's a funny thing: the Mishkan was sort of built to be deconstructed. Because it's a put-together and pull-apart. It's a temporary. That's the whole difference. It wasn't, It's not a house. So Mishkan can be pulled apart at any minute. It has that transient quality to it. So, I don't know if it's meant to be destroyed. Here we have to have a good sense of the English language. What exactly is the difference between deconstruction and destruction? Because Mishkan is not meant to be destroyed, but it's meant to be deconstructed all the time. Put-together and pull-apart. The temporary and transient nature of it seems to me to guard against the feeling that no, this is a permanent structure and uh, therefore it itself provides me like a cover that I can do a virus. And as long as the Michigan's is around, nothing will happen to me. It didn't seem to serve that function until a certain point. Now I'm just following what you find in the Tanakh. The Mishkan is built in Shmos, So let's get the timeline over here. The Jews left Egypt on Pesach. And they got the Ten Commandments. No, the Ten Commandments were pronounced on Shavuos. And the Ten Commandments were given on Shavuot of Batamas. But of course Moshe broke the tablets because that's the day they did the golden calf. And then you have 40, 40, 40. So by the time time they get the next Luchos, it's Yom Yom Kippur. And after Yom Kippur starts Vassal Krumah, you know, they get the orders to build the Mishkan. And according to Chazal, they completed, Moshe was a Zri guy, and the whole money and all the project was completed by Hanukkah. That's pretty efficient. As we say today, on the schedule and under budget. Right? Moshe Ben was not a government worker, you know, let the project go on and on and on. He got it done. Now, which, by the way, if you remember, is one of the reasons they say that you can have parties on Hanukkah if you're if that bothers you. You know, you know what I'm talking about. The Shulchan Aruch touring everywhere. How can you have parties on Hanukkah? It's only supposed to be Halevah So there are different answers. One of the famous answers is, well, you're celebrating the the, the, the completion of the Mishkan. Now, it wasn't erected, as we all know, until Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So here we are, about, about a year after Yitzhiz Mishraim, you got a Mishkan now, right? About a year after Yitzhiz Mishraim. Now that's interesting. So, once the Mishkan is up, for the next 40 years or so, because it's the beginning of the second year, uh, they're in the desert, we don't have any untoward incidents involving the Mishkan. Then, when they get to Israel, uh, Mishkan is there for a couple of hundred years, Right? Uh, there are not many references to it. There are a few, but not many references to it. And then, by the time you get to the beginning of Shmuel, say I would put this approximately 400 years, 300 and some years after you see Smith Ryan. Right? I don't want to get into the exact numbers. That's a big controversy in the commentaries. Um, you look in the conciliator, it give you like 10 charts, different ways of calculating the years of the uh, Shoftu. I want to get in that. But centuries. So you have a couple of centuries with the Mishkan. And then when the beginning of small, you see something very interesting. You have two basic problems with the Mishkan and, and they result in the destruction of the Mishkan. Right? Um, the first problem is the corruption of the priesthood. So the beginning of the Mishkan, as we all know, was put for Aaron. And Aaron's kids, Aaron and his kids ran the operation and they were honest. Okay? Now, that's what I say. As you know, Korach made the case that they're not honest. And Korach had a lot of followers. So it's never going to be clear to us what was the basis of Korach's following, but he was definitely able to get across the idea that Aaron and his kids were you know, corrupt. Now, God backed them up, Aaron and his kids, as we know the story of Korach. That proves that they were not corrupt, because of course the ground swallowed them all up, but you see got traction by arguing the priest that was corrupt, but when you get to Shmuel, which is a couple hundred years later, many generations have gone by uh they were corrupt, right the uh, the sons of Eli. and Ben that's already a bad omen, wait a minute, I'm not finished and then uh you also have the fact. That they already started to attach a kind of fetishism to the Mishkan objects itself. And I'm referring, of course, to the big battle with the Philistines, the beginning of Shemal Aleph, Battle of Offaic, where the Jewish army is battling the Philistines. And on day one, the Plishdim kind of win. And so the Jews say, Our battlefield is not that far away from where the Mishkan's located in Shiloh. So let us bring the Aron to the battlefield with the Kruvim. Then that will help us win. Now, it didn't. And uh, they were wiped out the next day and the Philistines captured the Aron. That's the famous story that we all know about from Shemolov. Uh, again, according to Chazal, the Philistines then went on on a rampage. And they went, like I say, not far away. And they burned down the Mishkan. So what is it that caused the problem? The Corruption of the priesthood, okay, that's for sure. In other words, if a coin is misusing it, so that's Mamish, uh, messing over what the Mishkan is supposed to be, or basically, and number two, and more interesting to me, that the people looked on the Mishkan and everything as a good luck charm. Uh, um, if you look closely over there in Shmuel, they were defeated because they said, Oh, now we brought the the krubim, Hashem Mashem Tzvosa Yoshua now we bought this matter, we're going to win. Even the guy in the Philistines looked at it as an idol, and they said, uh-oh, the Jews have brought the Ark. This is the this is the Ark that destroyed Egypt and split the Red Sea and all that. No, that's not true. <laughs> the Ark is just a box with some tablets in it. Hashem is something different. <laughs> he made all this. He commanded them all to be made. He's not the Ark. They didn't see it that way. And you see, therefore, they rely on the Mishkan itself as a fetish, so the most sacred thing in the world can become an Abod-Azhar. Look how clever the Yitzhar is. The most sacred thing in the world, the Mishkan itself with the Ten Commandments, and the on and everything, can become a azhar And because they're looking on that, they have a a, a big comeuppance. Um, the Jews in the story didn't have to worry about what happened to the iron because Hashem could take care of Himself. By the time the story's over, the Philistines give the iron back. But, uh, but the Jews were uh, uh, smashed. Now, wait a minute. At that point... They, you know, uh, Chofni and Pinchas, the Kohanim are killed. The army's destroyed. Eli soon dies when he hears the news, and so Shmuel takes over. And Shmuel says, "You want to do this right? Get rid of your idols. What idols? Turns out, everybody had idols at home. So, oh, so the Mishkan they had, and they went to the Mishkan. I assume." To fulfill their duties. But at the same time, they had idols in house. How do you work that out? The answer is I, I take care of both my obligations. I don't want Baal to be angry at me, so I do some a Baal stuff. I don't want a Kashbar to be angry at me, so I do that Kashbar stuff at the Mishkan. You see how it gets corrupted? And the essential, and they clearly had the idea that the Mishkan itself is like their good luck charm. And therefore, this was disproved. Now, um, all of this shows you. The Mishkan is like a paradoxical business. Hashem wants it, but He wants it temporary, but He wants it in such a way that it shouldn't become, I won't say an object of worship, but it shouldn't become like an excuse to make you feel good, that you can also do avodazor and other things like that, uh, and the Mishkan will protect you from the consequences. If you look at the Mishkan and something protects you from the consequences of your sin, then you misunderstand the whole idea. That's not bashalchanti <laughs> b'silcham. You see? That's not and indeed, by the way, in Shmuel's story, it's very interesting to read it. I don't think people pay close attention to it. When he says, hasiris al- hasiris al- they do. He said they got rid of the idols. And then he said, now let's daven. Okay? And when they daven, the police were defeated. Oh, so you didn't need an ark. The ark at that time was in the hands of the Philistines. You didn't need a mishkan, the mishkan was destroyed. The davening did the trick. Meaning, if you keep the Metros and so on and so forth, you have the trick, then you don't need the mishkan. So it's a, it's a funny, funny kind of story that we have when we contemplate the Mishkan. Now, as I said before, the, the, the these stories are paradoxical, but not exactly. The basic religious experience is paradoxical. You have to see a place that reminds you of the Shechina, but on the other hand, you know it's not exactly there. Meaning, not in the sense that we ordinarily associate. It's not God's house. He doesn't live in the house. He doesn't live in the house. It says. So, but you have to know what it means. So, we end up with building a Michigan. And I repeat, this is something Hashem asked for. Not a permanent. Now, when they built a the permanent one, it's more dangerous. Because when it's there for century after century in the same place, and it looks big and impressive, after all, it kind of, you know, gets that feeling that this is impregnable. And, baby, it was pregnable. <laughs> uh, that's the story. By Shem, by Shem, it's pregnable. Uh, the Michigan too. Mishkan too. And so, what do we uh, take away from over here? The great project in the Mishkan itself is, uh, is one that has to be understood in the right way. If it's not understood in the right way, as an aid, as a help, you know, then pff, it's Tegnish. Now, it's kind of parallel to the story of Harsina. Because Moshe did all this physical stuff, but the real action is happening in the Rukhnesin realm. Mishkan also... Pff, We have all this physical stuff. And the physicality is very interesting in its own for the following reason. I'm not an Egyptologist. Uh, Historians and archaeologists, not the same thing. Many people think they are. Uh, I mean, I know a little bit of Egypt. I'm mainly interested, obviously, for Jewish reasons. The main interest of Egypt was the 19th dynasty. The other dynasty is not negated to the Jews. Get to the 19th dynasty. That's the one where some, were, some of these guys were the Paros of Egypt. You know, whether, we know exactly, uh, was it Seti? Was it Ramses II? You know, that's a whole discussion. discussion. Uh, but those knowledge, like, uh, what's the name? Professor uh, Berman, Josh Berman, who's the from guy who's an Egyptologist, I think in Barlan. I know he has all these articles and books and so forth. It's not my cup of tea, but making the point that the Mishkan and everything in it is Egyptian style. Um, if you know Egyptian furniture, you know with a ark in the middle and the crew and, and the rooms and the way they're organized, the time It's exactly what I'm talking about with the different levels. Just like you go up the mountain, but that's not really what's happening. If they're building a mishkan, the tower is always. When I'm talking about seventy levels, uh, not seventy faces, seventy levels. Part of the tower is already timely, and, and and part of the tower is timeless, right? We have mitzvahs and all this kind of stuff. The Torah was given at a certain time a couple thousand years ago. Approximately 3,000 years ago. And yet we say, those who believe, that although they're timely, they're also timeless. Uh, It's a mistake a lot of people make. You have to look at the Torah on multiple levels to have an idea what's flying. The language is old and the furniture is old. But it's not all at the same time as timeless. It applies today. Um, people angry at the Rambam, for example, for saying that the carbonus were because at that time people were into Carbonus. It sounds like a time bound. What they don't understand, at least in my mind, is that is explaining one aspect of it. He's not giving the reason. He's giving a reason. There certainly was. I'm sure he's right. When they heard the way the carbonus were were um, given out uh by Rabun Shalom and in, in, in uh you know in uh in Vayikra, and by but when he heard all these karmas, it had to have resonated at that time as anti Egyptian kind of statements. <laughs> you know the Ramah famous if the Egyptian if the if the pagans do it on the left, the Tartarus do it on the right. Uh if it says that we have yes, salt and no honey, then by the pagans it must have been uh yes honey and no salt. You know, whatever they do, it's the opposite. That doesn't mean That's the totality of it. That's the way the Bershalom chose to give it so people at that time will understand. And at the same time, embedded in it are timeless aspects as well, timeless reasons. So when you look at the Mishkan, it could be, I don't doubt, that was according to a fashion of a certain type. The Mishkan had to look like a religious shrine of that era. That doesn't mean that's all it is, right? Uh... It means that contained within that Egyptian type architecture, I'm assuming that Professor Berman is right because what he said makes sense to me, based on the fact he found other archaeological junk about this. Right? What it means is even though it's contained within a framework of 19th century, 19th dynasty Egypt, right, because that's when they lived, but in the Atsashitin um, and in the Urios, the and in the Kafter v'ferach and all the other stuff that you find, you can also see timeless reasons that do not only apply to the Egypt of the nineteenth dynasty. And we who have lived now for three thousand years, we can see it. Uh, you see a lot of aspects in the Mishkan and the other targumtesh where apply very heavily nowadays, uh, even though it said it's three thousand years ago in a different, completely different cultural context. Now. The problem with that is, for some people, is what happens when it runs against current uh, cultural fashions. That's the, uh, pro- that's the challenge Jews always face. You know, there was a, let me put it this way. The Mishkan must have been a very big insult to the idolaters of old, if the Ramah right, because everything in there is connected to what they do. So in other words, the type of animals that we shafted are the type of animals they wouldn't shaft. So it's like an insult. Uh, like I said before, if if we do yes, salt, and no honey, then they do the opposite. they must have seemed like antithetical insult. So there is this countercultural aspect to the Mishkan. Today, nobody knows about this stuff because we don't have the uh, reserve old anymore. It has other meanings to it. Now, if you're looking for layers of meaning in the Mishkan, you know, check out Sam Serainville Hirsch or somebody like that. I'm serious, you know. He goes and uses detail. Uh, he ain't the only one. He goes and use the tail, uh, but the timely and the timeless mixed together in this interesting way. Um, the example nowadays would be in sexual matters. You know, where the Torah's ideas of what's right and what's wrong do not agree with what contemporary society says was right and wrong. We all know that, right? There's that countercultural quality. So you have this notion of the Mishkan as uh, you know. There's a God out there who's not in any place, and then there's God here that's in a place. From an aspect, from one point of view, it helps the person connect. But if you focus just on this one point of view, then you won't get the right picture. Just like if a person totally looked at the carbonus, like the Rambam says in Mernevuchim, strictly as a time bound thing without any other of the Shivan punim to it, then you'd get it wrong. Uh, but if you incorporate that as part of it, then you get it right. So we're left with a Mishkan, which, which leads the challenge to us today, every year, to say, how would a Mishkan apply to us today? Now, at first glance, you say, well, we have shoals. So we have buildings. That's true. The same problem have a shoal. Does someone only encounter God in the shoal? Or, or, or do you simply say it helps? Uh, these are, are basic psychological questions what's called cultural anthropology. You know, how does a human being relate to the transcendent? Right? Uh, And again, from the broad point of view, the Jewish tradition has all kind of uh, presentation. We don't have a single Jewish uh, point of view. We don't have a single Jewish point of view. So, uh, the Mishkan, the way it's described archaeologically, will fit the Rambam. Who is the poster boy for the one who says you don't need a Mishkan at all? Is a breastloaf, right? <laughs> you know, you can go and talk to God in, in, in a store in a field, which is true. We don't say one's antithetical to the other if they're contradictory, and only seem to be contradictory. Now, a lot of this is confusing because most people are not used to thinking along these lines. I'm throwing these ideas out there because I think it's a like intrinsic to the very notion of the Mishkan, which I say again, it's funny in that obviously God here wants a Mishkan and goes to great. Details to give the architectural instructions to Moshe Beno. Mashankin, when it comes to Base it was the opposite. He said, I don't want it. And when he showed up, he said, I'm not crazy about it. I hope this doesn't become a substitute, you know, for belief in me and and, and uh, you know Vodizor and things like that. Uh the Mishkan in general seems to be a superior model. Perhaps it's transience. The fact that it moves here and it moves there, it can be taken apart. Perhaps. Is something of a extra insurance policy that people won't be so um, what's the right word so so uh, complacent and comfortable about because you don't see it all the time when it's when it's when it's erected it's erected when it's not erected it's not erected or perhaps that itself reminds you that this is really where God lives perhaps when you come to a temporary place a tent and so forth you realize. This is just a representation. As opposed to when you see a building, especially if it's a Taj Mahal, a gigantic building, you might actually start to think God lives here. You know? So isn't that paradoxical? The cheaper it is, the less dangerous it is. The fancier schmancier it is, the more dangerous it is from a theological perspective. And I just want to throw some of these ideas out. Because I think they uh, very much inhabit um, Truma Tetzava by Yaakov And by all means, when you look for the symbolisms are there, and, you know, some are better, some are worse. That depends on who you are. But the, to my mind, the fact, you have the symbolic on the one hand, and then you have the uh, non-symbolic. You have the physical on the other hand. There is a Mishkan, and it did look like an Egyptian place 3,000 years ago. That's like a fascinating uh, notion. We can't help If you're Jewish. Living in this world and not. Living in your culture and not. We're American Jews, right? Wherever you are listening to me. Uh, You have like two faces, two identities maybe. You are living in your world. You're living in, in, in the outer world. I bet you most people listening to this are dressed Western style. And yet, probably, you don't inhabit... The, the world of Western culture and values At least from where they clash with the Torah's ones So it's a funny business This this um, paradox But remember paradox is only From the human perspective If God created logic he's not subject to logic So two things that can't be at the same time That's a human thing If you think about it from a God thing Two things could be at the same time There are no uh, to, At least that's how I understand it That like you can't hold God to physical rules That's why you know, we have the concept of transcendence and immanence. That's really Christian terms. The transcendent God is not subject to anything. The imminent God is subject to rules. Well, how's it work? Like I said before, from one aspect, the Mishkan represents this, and from the other aspect, it represents the transcendent one. As I said, I know these are difficult and uh, uh, rather deep ideas, but I figured let's throw it out and shake everybody up a little bit um, this year as we seriously contemplate Truma Tzatzaba and Bayak With that, I wish you a good job. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbydovecats.com.